I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want to ask you a simple question this morning. What in the world are you doing? You say, that's what my mom always asked me. Or my teacher, or my wife. That's right, but they ask it as a rhetorical question. I'm asking it this morning as one of the most significant questions you have to face. Because this is a question that is expecting an answer. Because what you are doing in the world either pleases or displeases God. What you are doing in the world either attracts people to Jesus or deters people from Jesus. What you do in the world is either drawing them to Him or driving them away. You see, the world is watching you. The world is evaluating you. They want to see if what you claim is a reality in your life. They want to see if you really practice what you preach. The world can only hear about Jesus. They can see you. Someone said, we are the only Bible the careless world will read. We are the sinner's gospel. We are the scoffer's creed. We are the Lord's last message given in word and deed. One of the most convicting verses in all of Scripture is in 2 Corinthians 3, 2, where Paul says, You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. My life is an epistle. The epistle according to Dan. Your life is an epistle. The epistle according to Mike. The epistle according to Cindy. What are people reading? What is the message that they're getting from your life? In the summer of 1805, the Boston Missionary Society sent a representative to Buffalo Creek, New York, to present the Christian message to a council of Indian chiefs and warriors. Afterwards, a response was given by one of the leading chiefs named Red Jacket. Among other things, this is what he said. We are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors and we are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good and makes them honest and less disposed to cheat the Indians, then we will consider again what you have said. The world is watching. If the only concept of Jesus the world ever got was you, what would their impression be? What in the world are you doing? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 20, Peter helps us with the answer to that question because he tells us what the believer ought to be doing in the world. And he does so by presenting the Christian in three aspects or from three perspectives as sojourners, as citizens, and as servants. 
First of all, as sojourners, verses 11 and 12. Notice verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Now, Peter uses two words to describe us here. The first is aliens. That's a word that means a foreigner, someone who is not at home. I flew home from California Sunday night, and I changed planes in Houston. When I got on the plane, I sat down by two girls aged 13 and 14. And I said to them, is, is St. Louis your home? And they said, well, sort of. And then they explained to me that their parents were in the back of the plane, and their parents were missionaries, and they were coming home from Ecuador to live a year in St. Louis. And I realized that these girls had been born in Ecuador and spent all but a few months of their lives there. And though these girls didn't look like foreigners and they didn't sound like foreigners, they were foreigners. And that became apparent a few minutes later because they were looking out the window at the sunset. And they would look at the sunset and they would look at each other and they would look at their watch and they would look at me and they would look at the sunset and look at each other and look at their watch and look at me. And I finally I said, what's so unique about the sunset? And they said, well, it's 8.30 at night and the sun's still out. In Ecuador, where we live on the equator, the sun goes down at 6 p.m. every single night. You see, they were foreigners. They were not at home here. And Peter says that same thing is true of Christians. We are foreigners. We are not at home in this world. Paul said in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. If you're a Christian, you're just here on a green card. And then secondly, he uses another term. He says we are strangers. That's a word that means someone who's only here for a brief stay. Someone who is just traveling through. Now, travelers don't get too attached to things that would impede their journey. They travel light. I thought I ought to bring a gift home to my wife, and so I was out in California looking at some big, expensive gifts. But I bought her a T-shirt because I was a traveler, and I was traveling light. Peter says that's the way we are as Christians. We're just here for a brief stay. We're just passing through. Hebrews 13, 14 says, Here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. When I was a kid, we used to sing the song, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. We are foreigners. We are only here temporarily. We are sojourners. And as a sojourner, what in the world am I to be doing? Well, Peter gives us two exhortations. The first is in verse 11. The second is in verse 12. The first is negative. The second is positive. The first is to benefit you. The second is to benefit others. The first is internal. The second is external. The first is private. The second is public. The first in verse 11 is to abstain from fleshly lusts. 
Now, what are fleshly lusts? Well, those are all the things that my sinful flesh desires to do. Our selfish, indulgent, natural appetites. Just get yourself in a totally selfish mindset, and it's all those things that you desire to do. And they're usually easy to recognize by the pronouns because they're all me, my, mine. And those fleshly lusts, those fleshly desires lead to actions like Paul lists in Galatians chapter 5, which he calls the deeds of the flesh. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these. What are we to do? Peter says we're to abstain. That means say no, don't touch, stay away. A couple of years ago, I went to Africa, and I was in Tanzania on Lake Victoria. The missionaries there told me, don't drink the water, and don't swim in the lake. Now, why did they tell me that? The people there were drinking the water, and the people there were swimming in the lake. Why couldn't I? Well, because my body was not accustomed to all the bacteria in that water. I was not in my own domain. And listen, we are in this world, but we're not in our own element. And we cannot do the things that they do. It runs contrary to our system. This is not our domain. This is not our world. We must, as Peter said, abstain. Why? For our own benefit. You know what would have happened if I had drank the water in Africa and swam in the lake? I would have gotten sick. And if I persisted, I could have died. Why should we abstain from fleshly lusts? Look at verse 11 at the end. It says, because they wage war against the soul. These are not things you can flirt with. These are not things you should fiddle around with because they are things that will burn you. Peter says, they are attacking your soul. There is a war going on. You see, the struggle we have with the world is not primarily external. It's primarily internal. Our real battle is not with the people around us. Our real battle is with the passions within us. I like what D.L. Moody said. He said, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any other man I know. You see, the battle takes place at the point of your selfish desires. And that's where the battle is either won or lost. In fact, did you know that if you abstain from fleshly lusts, you're 100% less likely to sin? I guarantee it. If you will abstain from fleshly lust, they will not give birth to actions 
in your life. But if you do, Peter says, they are waging war against your soul. Now, what's your soul? Well, that's the real you. The soul is not some compartment inside of you. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, when God made man, it says He breathed into man and He became a living soul. Fleshly lusts are like a rebel army. They're like an army of gorillas and they're intent on capturing and destroying your soul. And they're using espionage because it's an inside job. And that word war means a military campaign. We don't win one battle and the war is over. It's a constant warfare. We continually must abstain. And then the second exhortation is in verse 12. And that is, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Now that word excellent is the Greek word kalos. It's actually used twice in this verse. It's the same word translated good in front of good deeds further down in the verse. And it's a word that means lovely or attractive. Your life, your behavior, your actions are to be good, attractive, lovely. Why? Verse 12 goes on. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Rather than being fuel for their criticism, your life is to be the impetus that attracts them to Jesus Christ. In fact, the word observe in this verse means to inspect more closely. Now, in case you haven't noticed it, the world is skeptical. The world is critical of Christians. They are expecting you to be a hypocrite. They are expecting to be able to slander you as an evildoer. They are looking for an excuse to reject the gospel. But Peter says, on further careful observation, they should see that your deeds are good and lovely and attractive. And what's the result? The end of verse 12, they glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, what's the day of visitation? Is that the day when the pastor comes to see you in the hospital? No. That's a term that's used throughout the Old Testament, and it's used there of times when God came to visit man, either to bring judgment or mercy. But interestingly, it's only used in the New Testament of times when God came to visit man to bring mercy. In fact, it's used at least three times in the Gospel of Luke. Every time it has to do with God visiting His people to bring them salvation. And so Peter is saying that the one who looks closely with the intent to slander will instead find salvation. He will get a visit from God. And it's your life that can have that kind of impact on another person. Your lifestyle can be the factor that turns a person from a mocker 
into a worshiper. And how does it happen? When your life is lovely and attractive and filled with good deeds. I'm convinced that the transformed life of an individual is the very best argument there is for Christianity. The Christ-like life of an individual is the best argument there is for Christianity. If we would all start living that way, we'd have to finish this balcony and go back to two services. You know, there are a lot of books and courses today on evangelism emphasizing techniques and methods But there's something far more fundamental than that. Peter says, if you will abstain from fleshly lusts and live a lovely, attractive, Christ-like life, people will see that and they will want to hear what you have to say. Joe Aldrich in his book, Lifestyle Evangelism, said Christians are to be good news before they share good news. You see, that's the bottom line. Someone has said the strongest missionary force in the world is a real Christian life. In Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, it says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And you know who called them Christians? The world. What a compliment! From the world's perspective, they said Jesus was here. We saw his character. He was killed. His life was snuffed out. We thought he was gone. But here in Antioch is a whole community of people that are just like him. And so they said, we're going to call them Christians, Christ-like ones. My desire is that we as a church would be like the church at Antioch so that when the world looks more closely, their response is, those people are like Christ. And they're attracted to Him. Instead of speaking against us, they glorify Him. You see, that's what Jesus called us to do. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. So easy by your life to unsay everything you're trying to say. And I would hate to think that my life is in any way responsible for marring the image of Christ in the eyes of someone by the way I live. What in the world are you doing As sojourners, we ought to be abstaining from fleshly lusts and keeping our behavior attractive. And then there's a second perspective, and that says citizens in verses 13 to 17. You say, well, since I'm a foreigner and since this is really not my home, I guess I don't have to abide by the laws. I guess I don't have to pay taxes. After all, I'm a foreigner. Well, let's see what kind of citizens Peter says we're to be. That First of all, he gives a command, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. The word submit is a military term. It means to arrange yourself under the commander. 
to place yourself beneath the authority of another for the purpose of obeying. And who are we to submit to? He says, every human institution. The institution of man in whatever form it's in that brings order to society. And he goes on to name whether it be a king or whether it be the governors. He's talking about the government. You know, a lot of people spend a lot of time criticizing the government. But let me tell you something. Even bad government is better than no government. Even the worst government is better than no government. Because when you have no government, you have chaos. Ask the people in Sarajevo. Ask the people in Bosnia. As Christians, we are to place ourselves under the authority of the government to obey. Federal laws, state laws, city laws, tax laws, traffic laws. Paul said it this way in Romans 13:1, "Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities." Christians ought to be the best citizens a country has. And then he gives the motive, verse 13. Notice, for the Lord's sake. Your response to the government isn't dependent on whether you think they deserve it or not. You see, you have a higher motive than that. You are doing it for the Lord. You're to pay taxes not because of the IRS, but because of the Lord. You're to obey the law, not because of the police, but because of the Lord. In fact, in Romans chapter 13, Paul says, there is no authority except from God. And he goes on in that passage to tell us that government officials are ministers of God. You could call them reverend if you like. They are carrying out the purposes of God. And then he tells us the extent. Notice in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, he could have said most. He could have said the majority. He could have said all but a few. But he said every. Which tells me that our job is not to pick and choose. Our job is to obey. And then he gets more specific at the end of verse 13. He says, whether to a king as the one in authority and in Peter's day, that would be the Roman emperor, Nero. In our day, in a democratic society, that would be the president or the prime minister. And then verse 14, he says, Or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Governors are those who the king delegates authority to. And Peter is specifically talking in verse 14 about those who enforce the laws. In our society, those would be police officers. They have a simple job description. Punish those who do wrong and praise those who do right. You know, if you're not doing anything wrong, you never have to flinch when you see a police car. Right? Now, for those of you who saw me pulled over on Mount Auburn a few months ago, That officer was just letting me know what a good job I was doing. <laughs> you know, P 
Peter's an interesting one to be giving this exhortation. Because he's the one who pulled his sword in the garden when the police officers came in, you remember? He's the one who was going to take on the government. But Jesus has changed his heart so that now he's not interested in overthrowing the government. He's interested in getting underneath the government to obey. Why? Well, that's the reason, verse 15. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Peter says it's the will of God. Now that ought to be enough reason for us, but he goes on to give us further reason. He says, when you do what is right in respect to the government, you silence the critics. And that word silence is literally muzzle. You muzzle the critics. Remember in Daniel chapter 6, the commissioners and the satraps were watching Daniel to try to find him doing something wrong, and they couldn't find one single thing that he did wrong. So they had to invent a law that went against the law of God. That should be true of us. People ought to have to make things up to accuse us. Our right actions toward the government silences the critics. And then fifth is the attitude, verse 16. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Now, as a Christian, I am free. I'm free from sin. I'm free from judgment. I'm free from this world. I am free from the bonds of legalism. But my liberty is not to be used as a license for evil. Mine is not a freedom to throw off all the restraints. Mine is a freedom to submit myself as a bond slave of God. Our freedom is not to do wrong. Our freedom is for the first time in our life to have the power and privilege to actually do right. And so he says our attitude is that we're not flaunting our freedom. We are using that freedom to make ourselves willingly bond slaves of God. And then finally, there's the application, verse 17. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Remember when you're a kid, you used to make those pyramids, people on top of people? Well, this is kind of like a four-tier pyramid that he makes here. And he starts at the bottom and goes up. And first of all, he says, honor all men. That's everybody. What's my attitude? to be toward everyone. I'm to honor them. Why? Because every person is made in the image of God. And this phrase rules out any racism, favoritism, prejudice. My response is to honor every other person because they're created by God. And then he moves up a tier. He says, love the brotherhood. That's the family of God. That's a smaller circle of people. We are to love them, and the word used here is agape. With that unconditional love of God is our response to them. Then he moves up a level. He says, fear God. And he is the one we are to give the ultimate expression of respect. We are to fear God. And then he moves up a tier, and he says, honor the king. You say, well, wait a minute. What's he doing at the top? Well, you've got to remember the context here. The context is he's talking about our response as citizens to the government. 
And this is not an order of priority, it's an order of perspective. Because you see, once you truly fear God, then you will be able to honor the king because you will realize God has given him the authority that he holds. And that's your calling as a citizen. What in the world are you doing? As a citizen, you ought to be submissive to those in authority, and you ought to honor those in authority. Now, I hear a lot of Christians today saying, I just can't honor our president. Well, when Peter wrote this, the king on the throne was Nero. He was probably personally responsible for more murders than anyone in history, including Hitler. In fact, he was not only bad, he was probably insane. Historians say that he is probably the one who was responsible for burning the city of Rome. Shortly after his mother got him into power, he killed her. And then he killed his own advisors. He eventually killed himself. And guess what? Peter, who is writing this, was going to be martyred under the authority of Nero. And yet Peter says, we are to submit to him and honor him. You see, you can honor the position even when you can't honor the personality. And then the third perspective is as, is as servants in verses 18 to 20. And the word servant that he uses here is of a domestic servant. It would include in that day someone who was owned by a master as a slave. It would also include those who were hired by someone to do work. Now as we bring the application over into our day, this would apply to employees. What should a Christian employee do? Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. You should place yourself beneath your boss to obey him with an attitude of respect. You say, well, but Dan, you don't know my boss. He's the worst. He's evil, he's crooked, he's, he cheats. Well, let's read on. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. The Christian response is submission and respect regardless of the boss. You see, Peter says some of them are good and gentle, but others are unreasonable. That word literally means perverse. It's the Greek word skolios from which we get the medical term scoliosis, referring to curvature of the spine. Some bosses have scoliosis of the character. They're crooked, they're twisted, they're perverse. You say, well, how can I be submissive to a rotten boss? Well, the answer is in verses 19 and 20. Notice verse 19. For this finds favor... If for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. If you're suffering unjustly in the workplace and yet you keep bearing it, not retaliating, not striking back, and you're doing it out of conscience toward God, Peter says this finds favor with God. 
You see, you can be pleasing God in the most miserable of workplaces. But then he qualifies the kind of suffering he's talking about in verse 20. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. Now he says, if you brought the sin on yourself and you patiently endure it, that doesn't count for anything. Anybody can bear reproof when they brought it on themselves. I mean, if you're showing up late every day for work and the boss reprimands you and you patiently endure it, big deal. You deserve it. But Peter says the real test is when you're doing what's right and you're suffering for that and you patiently endure it, then that finds favor with God. Now let me add a footnote here. Because we spend a great deal of time asking God for better jobs. And that's all right because He can do that. But these verses make it apparent to me that God is not as concerned with us getting the best possible job as He is with us being the best possible worker with the best possible attitude regardless of the job and regardless of the boss. And you see, that's God's concern because not only is God watching, but the world is watching. Are they seeing us as sojourners, abstaining from fleshly lusts and keeping our behavior attractive? Are they seeing us as citizens submitting to and honoring the governmental authorities? Are they seeing us as servants submitting to and respecting our employers? You know, a lot of people are knocking Christianity today. Maybe the only thing they know is you. And that's why they're knocking it. Maybe the only thing they know is me. And that's why they're knocking it. Billy Graham said, We are the Bibles the world is reading. We are the creeds the world is heeding. We are the sermons the world is needing. It's time that you and I seriously answered the question, what in the world are you doing? We're going to close in prayer. I'm going to ask uh, Stanley and Ruth Roth to come up who are baptized. And after we close in prayer, I'm going to give you the opportunity to come and encourage them this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. And we thank you for this passage of Scripture that does so practically speak to where we live. And Father, I pray that we might realize afresh today that you have left us in this world because people are watching. Help us to be serious about making a difference in this temporal world that will impact eternity. And Father, may we be able to rejoice and glorify you together with people whose lives we have impacted because we've been faithful to walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.